Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of Unfinished, Shubury's Lost Boys, with me, Charles Thompson. Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Our last episode ended in October 2017 when Essex police announced the Shubury paedophile ring investigation had been reopened days after I delivered a letter from a new complainant who we're calling Victim 6. But roughly six weeks after that announcement, I received a telephone call from Victim 6, who was confused and upset. Police had told the Yellow Advertiser that his letter had reopened the case, but nobody from Essex police had contacted him at all. It was as if the letter had never been handed in. His words from that phone call, as in our previous episode, are being read by an actor to preserve his anonymity. I'm anxious every day, waiting for the police to call me. I want it dealt with as quickly as possible. It's hard to sleep at night. I just want my life back. I want them to do what they have to do and then leave me alone. I'm thinking of going public because they need a rocket up their arse. I can't keep doing this. They already know the names. I told them. I just want it out of the way. I want to start enjoying my life again. I called the police press office to question why victim six had not been contacted. Days later, an officer did telephone him. Then, two female officers visited his home days before Christmas, but progress in his case was painfully slow. After Christmas, and throughout spring, Victim 6 asked time and again to participate in what is known as an ABE interview. An ABE is a videotaped interview which formally commences a police investigation. But every time Victim 6 asked when he could do an ABE, he was told the police just needed to chat to him a bit more first. This went on for more than six months. During that period, Victim 6 continued to speak to me regularly by telephone. We filmed a lengthy interview together and went on a drive around Southend and Shoebury, where he took me to addresses connected to his childhood abuse. When we reached one address, he became so distressed that he dived out of the car and threw up in the street. Separately from my work with Victim 6, I was continuing to track down people who'd worked on the original Shubury case in 1989-90, some of whom possessed paperwork they'd saved from that period. The more paperwork I found, the more corroboration emerged for the information Victim 6 was providing. Victim 6 named 11 boys that he recalled seeing with Dennis King and Brian Tanner, the only two men ever prosecuted for their involvement in the Shubury ring, and other paedophiles with whom King and Tanner were involved. One of the boys Victim 6 named was Jack, the artful dodger we heard about in our earlier episodes. Another was one of the six boys who'd formed the basis of King and Tanner's specimen charges in 1990. In total, six of the eleven names Victim 6 gave me were also names which had been given to the charity workers by other victims almost 30 years earlier. But there were also five new names. This could be due to Victim 6's age. By the time King and Tanner were arrested in 1989, Victim 6 was already over the age of 18. As we heard earlier in the series, 
A multi-agency meeting organised by Essex County Council in 1989 heard that there may have been at least one earlier wave of boys who had already passed through the ring's hands before it came to the authorities' attention. Victim 6 appeared to straddle two waves. He wasn't clear on dates or how old he'd been, but he did have a memory of Brian Tanner once picking him up and carrying him up a flight of stairs, suggesting he'd been relatively small at the time. In addition to naming boys he'd seen with King, Tanner and the other paedophiles, Victim 6 gave a name for one of the underage girls he remembered sleeping with police officers at Susie's flat. I later found a document showing a girl of that name had been linked to Susie during the original investigation. The name of the street where Dennis King lived had been published upon his conviction in 1990, but never his door number. King had lived on an estate with several identical blocks of flats in a row. Victim 6 was able to walk me straight to the correct block of flats and directly to King's front door. Months later... I'd gained access to old South End electoral registers, which showed he had taken me, without hesitation, to the correct flat. Victim 6 described being abused at a children's home in South End, where he was placed because he kept running away from home and committing crimes to fund his escapes. He told me Brian Tanner, and another of the abusers connected to King and Tanner, had visited that children's home. Tanner appeared friendly with one of the staff members, who had abused Victim 6 one night in his bedroom. King and Tanner would also hang around near the home, waiting for Victim 6 to walk past. Brian Tanner and King would come. They would be waiting near. There were two roads that I used, one that went up to the train station, or the one on the left that you took to the high street. But he knew the worker that was there. Brian definitely knew him, because I'd seen them speaking to each other. At the front, the TV room, you could see the road. I see him talking to him. I later found a document from 1990 in which the charity workers had identified that children's home as featuring in stories from a number of the victims. Six boys linked to the Shubury paedophile ring were also linked to the children's home victim six had identified to me. He had also begun telling me about his abuse by a network of other paedophiles to whom King and Tanner would pimp him out. They used to refer to them as parties. So there would be like two or three young boys, Brian Tanner, King, and the thing was, when you got in the jag, it's two doors. If you're in the back, there's no f***ing way out. Once you get in, you're f***ed. We went as far as Hove, Clacton, Malden, Marks Tay, Junksford, Pitsy, Rayleigh, Benfleet, London. These were just the places he knew. Sometimes he didn't know where he'd been taken. You've been walking around all day. And now it's one o'clock in the morning, you're in the car, the heating's on, you fall asleep, then you wake up somewhere. The details of some of the so-called parties were also hazy, he said. I think they used drink or drugs to numb stuff, you know, so we were like easier to manage. Something to drowsy you. Because to me, it all seems surreal, if you know what I mean. It's almost like you're there, but you're not there. Victim 6's memories of his interactions with the police as a child also echoed the criticisms I'd heard about the way the victims were treated in 8990. Having been picked up by the police after one of his many escapes, Victim 6 said he remembered sitting in a police station canteen and telling an officer all about what was going on. 
The officer wrote it all down in a little notebook, he said, but nothing ever happened. In our filmed interview, Victim 6 began to cry and told me that his convictions for theft, legally termed dishonesty offences, had been used to discredit him. No one believed you, he wept. Once you get that dishonesty on your record, that's it. It follows you for the rest of your life. Here's what he told me in another of our conversations. We're young people that are not being believed. We get treated like bits of shoes. And whenever you told them, they never did anything anyway, until you got to the point where you thought, well, no one gives a so just keep our mouth shut. Victim 6 also told me the story of the first party he was taken to by King and Tanner. It was late at night, and he was walking up a road that led away from the seafront in Westcliff when Dennis King's car pulled up alongside him. He goes, do you want to lift back to Shoebury? And I was like, no, I'm not going to Shoebury. And he's going, well, where do you need a lift to? And I said, I don't need a lift. By that time, Tanner's out of the car, the door's open, there's another lad in the car, Archie, he's in the car. He's about the same age as me, so I think, all right, what's the harm in getting a lift? Rettendon we ended up. That was the first party I went to. It was in a pub. We sat down and had a drink of orange. The next thing, we were upstairs, us two boys and them three. We've named the other boy in the car Archie to preserve his anonymity. In fact, Archie was one of the six boys who formed the basis of the charges against King and Tanner in 1990. Once upstairs, King took Archie into one room, whilst Tanner and another man took victim six into another and subjected him to a vicious sexual assault until King came in and interrupted them. But then Dennis came in the room. He never joined in that time. He just said to Brian, you can't leave marks on them. Victim six never knew who the third man was. He didn't have names for many of the abusers he'd been taken to. King and Tanner hadn't been stupid enough to identify them in front of their victims. Some were just referred to by generic first names, like Jim or Bill. Others had strange nicknames. One was known as the Milkman. Another was referred to as the Major. That's what Dennis called him. That's what everyone called him, the Major. He used to tell the kids he'd been in the army. Mr X, the charity worker we heard from in earlier episodes, remembered other boys talking about this particular abuser. I definitely remember some of the lads talking about being taken to see the Major. Victim 6 also told me about the first time he'd been driven to see the Major. But it was when we discussed Victim 6's second visit to the Major that a particular name caught my attention. He said there were four men present that time. A fifth was supposed to come, but never showed up. There was King, the Milkman, the Major, Brian... And there was supposed to be some other guy who Brian always used to threaten us with. Lenny. Who the f*** was Lenny? I never even met him. Well, I don't know whether I met him or not, but he always used to threaten us with him. Did he have a surname? Smith. So, you never met him, but they always talked about him? No. Well, I don't think we ever did. But he used to always... He used to say, if you keep this up, I'll take you to Lenny. Who the f*** is Lenny? That's all Brian used to bang on about, like, as if we should know who the Lenny is. Victim 6 may not have known who Lenny Smith was, but I did. 
In the 1980s, my parents had worked for a brewery as the live-in managers of a pub in North London. My dad had told me on several occasions about an incident that occurred in what must have been the summer of 1989. The pub, I would later establish, was under a mile's walk from Lenny Smith's address at the time. Smith, young, short and slim, had visited the pub a couple of times with an older, well-to-do-looking man who wore a suit and carried a briefcase. In the first instance, nobody had taken much notice of them, because there was no reason why they should. But one day, when the duo returned to the pub, a regular customer started whispering that the younger man was called Lenny Smith. The Daily Mirror newspaper had just published a front-page story with a large photograph of a man who had been connected to the sadistic, sexually motivated killing of a 14-year-old boy. The man in the Mirror's photograph was called Lenny Smith, and the man sitting in my parents' pub was the man in the Mirror's photograph. The whisper spread around the pub until a group of men confronted Smith, chased him outside, and beat him up. Smith managed to flag down a passing police van, but when the officers inside saw who he was, they just drove off again. All I knew about Lenny Smith was my dad's story, but the name had nonetheless rung alarm bells when Victim 6 mentioned it, so I began researching more about him. In 1975, Anthony Daly moved to London from Northern Ireland to work in a bookshop, but quickly found himself sucked into Soho's criminal underworld. In 2018, he published a book called Playland, in which he detailed the horrifying child abuse he witnessed whilst working as a male prostitute in the capital. The second edition was retitled, Abuse of Power. The book was accepted as evidence at the National Abuse Inquiry, ICSA, and Anthony was treated as a witness. During his time in the capital, Anthony met another rent boy called Skin Deep. He agreed to read an unpublished outtake from his book, exclusively for this podcast. Skin came from a broken home, and while still at school, became a rent boy. He was taken into care and subjected to multiple rapes and brutal beatings. Like every other rent boy I met, Skin was into drugs, anything he could get his hands on. Inevitably, he got into trouble with the law and had a criminal record from a young age. He was given the name Skin Deep because his speciality was S&M. His punters were into bondage, and he enthusiastically satisfied their needs. But he occasionally went well beyond the call of duty and let a few punters have it. Ensuring that a punter was securely shackled and couldn't break free, Skin, who was drugged up and sexually aroused, would lay into them with whips and belts and didn't consider the job done until he had broken skin and drawn blood. But some punters would hire another boy and watch him be beaten. Skin Deep turned bad, very bad. In 1985, Skin was arrested along with other members of a notorious pedophile gang known as the Dirty Dozen, led by Sidney Cook, on suspicion of murdering a 14-year-old schoolboy called Jason Swift. Skin's real name was Lenny Smith. He had graduated from renting to pimping. A number of boys lived with him, and he used them for sex and pimped them out. Jason Swift went missing from his home in London in summer 1985. That November, his body was discovered in a shallow grave in Ongar, Essex. It was discovered that he had been subjected to months of brutal gang rapes by a paedophile gang known as the Dirty Dozen. During one of these horrific attacks, he had died from asphyxia. Police later linked the gang 
led by travelling fairground worker Sidney Cook, to the killings of two more boys, Mark Tildesley and Barry Lewis. Officers suspected the gang may have killed dozens more children, but were never able to prove it. Four men were convicted of Jason's killing. Two of them named Lenny Smith as the man who had supplied Jason for them to abuse and said he had been present when the boy died. But Smith admitted nothing and ultimately avoided prosecution for not only Jason's death, but the other two boys as well. The case had since become the subject of all manner of internet conspiracy theories. By early 2018, when Victim 6 first mentioned Smith's name to me, the tide had started to turn against the historic allegations which had poured out after the Jimmy Savile scandal. Several prosecutions of high-profile figures had resulted in acquittals. Allegations of a supposed VIP paedophile ring at the heart of the British government had been badly discredited, and a scathing report had criticised police for treating the claims with credulity. The primary complainant would ultimately receive a lengthy jail term for fabricating allegations which had wasted millions of pounds of police resources. As a result of these developments, other, more credible allegations were also being rubbished. There were calls to shut down ICSA. In spring 2019, future Prime Minister Boris Johnson would compare historic abuse allegations to spaffing money up a wall. In this new climate of hostility towards historic complainants, Victim 6 including a notorious bogeyman of the paedophile conspiracy theory world in his story was exactly the sort of thing which, if it couldn't be proved, might be used to try to discredit the entire Shubury story. By June, seven months after Victim 6 had agreed to cooperate with the police, he still had not been given his ABE interview. I helped him secure a pro bono lawyer who told Essex Police that if Victim 6 was not given an ABE interview, and quickly, then a formal complaint would be filed against the force. So in July, he finally sat down for his first videotaped police interview. I left him to it and decided to start investigating the possibility of a link between the Shubury Ring and Lenny Smith. I started by calling retired detective David Bright, who'd worked on the Jason Swift case for Essex Police, and asking him if he knew of any connection between Southend and Lenny Smith. Because he was part of Cook's entourage, and we knew that uh, Sidney Charles Cook was a visitor to Southend, because that's where he used to get his supplies and sweets and candy floss and that kind of thing. As an aside, he also used to appear at the uh, fate and fairs. So we knew Cook came here. Cook was a very close associate of Lenny Smith, so it's a fair bet, safe bet to say that he would know the town. This was pretty circumstantial, but there was another important detail. After Jason Swift had fallen into the clutches of Lenny Smith, there was evidence that he had visited South End. Jason, when he went missing uh, for some time before his body was found, had made contact with his mother by way of postcards uh, from South End. This proved to be correct. Weeks after he disappeared, Jason sent his mother a postcard. It said, Dear Mum, I'm OK. I'm working with the fair at South End, so don't worry. See you soon. But this was still a long way off of proving a link between Lenny Smith 
and the Shubury paedophile ring, so I kept researching. I made a minor breakthrough when I managed to acquire a copy of a long out-of-print book about the Dirty Dozen, written by journalists Ted Oliver and Ramsey Smith. Titled Lambs to the Slaughter, it revealed that Lenny Smith had in fact lived in Southend around the late 1970s, early 1980s. Here's an excerpt. Smith went to Southend, where he worked for an elderly homosexual named Jack Parsons, who employed him as an amusement arcade assistant. The amusement arcade was a cover for dealing in drugs, prostitution of boys, and the picking up of boys. Lenny used to drug the boys' drinks, buy them sweets, meals, anything. Both Jack and Lenny ripped the company off for all the cash and all the prizes they could get. Jack Parsons was Lenny's sugar daddy. I was able to find a public record corroborating Oliver and Smith's timeline in the form of Lenny Smith's criminal record. It showed that in June 1980, Smith had appeared at Southend Magistrates Court, charged with one count of theft. When I asked retired Detective David Bright if he'd ever heard of Jack Parsons, he immediately responded, Ah, Uncle Jack. I asked him who Uncle Jack was. Cook used to see somebody who he referred to as Uncle Jack. When I say see somebody, in Southend, and again, if you're a, a gambling man, it's a fair bet to say it's one and the same, isn't it? According to Oliver and Smith's book, after his stint in Southend, Lenny moved to Birmingham and then into a flat on the Temple Mead Estate in Hackney, London. It was at this property, in late 1985, that officers from Essex Police showed up and questioned Lenny Smith about the disappearance of Jason Swift. According to the book, Smith was badly shocked by the visit. Shortly after the officers left, he swallowed a handful of pills and exclaimed, Let me die! Let me die! He was rushed to hospital and detained overnight. Then, said the book, The following day, Smith signed himself out against medical advice and fled to Southend. So I had established that Lenny Smith did in fact live for some time in Southend, was involved in the abuse of children while he was there, and had enough of an ongoing link to Southend to choose it as his bolt hole when he fled London amid the Jason Swift investigation. But then, for the time being, my research into Lenny Smith hit a dead end. It was a few months later, when I started researching the addresses Victim 6 had shown me on our drive around South End, that I would make a staggering discovery. During our trip to South End, Victim 6 had pulled into a road in Westcliff-on-Sea called San Remo Parade. Immediately outside the cliff's pavilion, a large South End theatre. It was a small, sloping road overlooking the estuary. That red door, number nine, that's bedsits. I remember being driven there. That's where we used to buy his marijuana from. King, so Dennis King is definitely linked to that flat. One of the guys who was there was really tall. He had a Heinz baked beans tin. That's where he used to keep the marijuana. Victim 6 told me he'd been abused at 9 San Remo Parade, but he didn't remember much about it. Later, while Victim 6 was still a teenager, a boy he was at school with had moved into Number 9 San Remo Parade, and Victim 6 would visit him on occasion to buy marijuana. One day, he knocked at the property, and the boy suggested they go to somebody else's house. He led Victim 6 to a property in nearby Finchley Road, 
where, as it got late, victim six passed out on the sofa. He woke up to find a man sexually assaulting him. So number nine, San Remo Parade, was at the centre of a lot of nasty memories for victim six. In November 2018, I set aside a full day to spend in the South End Public Records Archive, checking old electoral registers to see who had lived at the addresses Victim 6 had taken me to. This was when I discovered that he had correctly identified King's flat, but beyond that, the old books were bearing little fruit. Many of the properties he'd taken me to simply did not have any registered voters. Perhaps that was to be expected, given the sort of people we were looking for. But when I came to look up number 9 San Remo Parade, I got a shock. The property was divided into bedsits and seemed to have fairly transient occupants. Throughout the 1980s, lots of people came and went. But there was one name that was a constant throughout the entire decade. That name was Jack Parsons. The property to which Dennis King had repeatedly taken victim six was the home of Lenny Smith's so-called Sugar Daddy. So surely, this was where Lenny Smith had lived during his time in South End. But if he had, he hadn't registered to vote. Frustratingly, Lenny Smith's name did not appear on the electoral register at number 9 San Remo Parade. In the same week that I visited South End's public records archive, I made another discovery. This was the week that I read the letter written by Doreen Pond in September 1990, from which we heard an extract in episode 4. Two police officers had shown up at Doreen's home, grilling her about what she knew about the Shubury Ring and its possible links to a corrupt police officer. Here is another excerpt from her letter. Two officers came at 10.30am on Wednesday 12th of September and said they wanted to speak to me. They spoke of confidentiality. They said they had come as they had lots of information but no evidence on which to act. They asked me if I knew Lenny and I said no. So in 1990, police were asking questions about a mystery man linked to the Shubury paedophile ring whose name was Lenny. But the biggest discovery would come a few days later when I looked through Lenny Smith's prison records which had been published by the Ministry of Justice in response to a Freedom of Information request. Amongst his prison records were two forms filled out between 1983 and 1984. They were completed after Smith was sentenced in Birmingham in 1983 to 21 months in prison for burglary, theft and criminal damage offences. Smith was 5 foot 2, the forms recorded, with sallow skin. His occupation was given as labourer, but what interested me was his address. Although Lenny Smith had been convicted in Birmingham, he was still listing his address as South End. More specifically, on both forms, his address was given as Number 9, San Remo Parade, Westcliff-on-Sea, Essex. This was it. A clear link between paedophile police informant Dennis King, the ringleader of the Shubury paedophile gang, and Lenny Smith, the man named by fellow paedophiles as being complicit in the deaths of three children. Smith, although he avoided prosecution over the three deaths, was subsequently jailed 
for serious sexual offences against children as young as six. He was living in a nursing home under the name Bill Gilchrist when he died, aged 51, in 2006. The media reported that he died of AIDS, although his death certificate listed COPD as the sole cause of death. COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, causes inflammation of the lungs and breathing difficulties. Victim 6 never claimed to have met Lenny Smith, but the evidence I'd collated did corroborate his story that the Shubury ringleaders had been connected to Smith. I made this discovery in November 2018, just as Victim 6 was completing his ABE interviews. The process had been beset by delays. It had taken seven months and the threat of an official complaint to secure his first interview, then another four months to complete the interview process. He had not lived in Essex for many years, so attending his interviews involved a four-hour round trip. Despite this, the police only booked him in on each occasion for one hour. Gaps between his interviews were as long as 40 days. By the time he would get to his next appointment, he couldn't remember what had or hadn't been discussed at the previous ones. Several appointments were cancelled at very short notice by the police, citing childcare issues or lack of staff. On two occasions, they cancelled his appointments on the day when he was already on the road to Essex. The detective who'd led Operation Sands had gone on long-term sick leave after Victim 6 agreed to cooperate. His case had been handed to a PC who confided in him that this was her first ever case since joining the child abuse team. She also told him that she did not have access to any information from Operation Sands so she could check whether any of his evidence was corroborated by the prior five complainants, strengthening the prospect of a successful prosecution. She was having, in her words, to start Victim Six's case from scratch. By the time his interviews ended in November, Victim Six still didn't know who Lenny Smith was. That news had to be broken to him by a counsellor when the process had concluded. It was deeply shocking to learn how close he'd come at the Major's house to an encounter with a suspected serial child killer. Victim Six's final ABE took place on November the 21st, 2018. More than a year had elapsed between him agreeing to cooperate and Essex Police concluding his interviews. Nine days later, on November the 30th, Dennis King died, aged 83, at City Hospital, Peterborough. Victim Six's case had been dragged out for so long that any prospect of questioning the prime suspect had just been lost. Tanner was already dead, so the only person in the world who might hold all of the answers about the identities of the other abusers, about the police officer who'd frequently visited his flat, had just taken all of those secrets to his grave. But King's death would unlock a lot of his own secrets. Data protection laws did not protect the deceased. I was now free to demand all sorts of information about Dennis King, which was previously off-limits. In the coming months, I would learn the horrifying truth about the depraved sex offender Essex Police had apparently employed as a registered informant. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished. 
It was written by me, Charles Thompson, and edited by Tom Bristow. If you'd like to support our work, please visit presspatron.com forward slash unfinishedpodcast.html. All money raised will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider or mention it to a friend. Thank you. This podcast concerns offending which occurred several decades ago. There is no suggestion that anybody who lives at Number 9 San Remo Parade today is linked to any sexual offences. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.